Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. Hello, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good middle of the night, you fellow travelers. Uh, it's me, Dr. Stu, today solo again. Bliss has been dealing with some uh, other issues, and she will be back with us next week. I wanted to wish you all a belated Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I'm hopeful that 2024 will bring some good changes. I know that 2023 was not necessarily a great year for a lot of people. Although all of, all of you who had children during this year, um, it was probably a very good year for you. So today I'm going to do what I would call my my leftovers, uh, sort of like after Christmas or after Thanksgiving, the next day you're eating leftovers out of the fridge. These are things that um, have been in my mind attic for a while, and I want to get some of them out. Some of them are newer and some of them are old, um, but since it's just me today and I really don't like being without bliss, I'm going to... Uh, share things that are just in my head today. Um, I'm going to start by just talking about my daughter's Uber story. Uh, my daughter was coming to, for Christmas to Los Angeles. We all met there. And she lives in New York now. And she got in the wrong Uber. And she got out real quickly and got in a different Uber. And she left her backpack in the Uber with her two computers in it and a whole bunch of other important stuff. Fortunately, she had her wallet and her phone with her, but but she left it in, a, in an Uber. And she tried really hard to reach a human being. And because of either privacy concerns or the, the automated system, there was nobody that she could speak to that would help her. And it would have been a very simple thing. Since it wasn't her Uber, she didn't she couldn't track it. She got in the wrong Uber. And um, so she, you know, she got part of the license plate and, uh, but they wouldn't help her. Uh, and she couldn't really reach a human being that had any sensitivity. And this is something that's probably going to get worse and worse as we get more into the uh, AI world and we get more into the automated system. You know, I don't know how many of you eat fast food, but if you ever go into McDonald's now, you most, a lot of times you have to order off this panel and if sometimes you're your first time doing it, you don't know how to do it. Now, occasionally they'll have somebody there that helps you, but often you don't. And it's, and it's very confusing. It would be just easy to walk up the counter and say, you know, give me two cheeseburgers and some fries. But you can't do that anymore. And you can't, and the humanity is being taken out of things. And what she ended up doing was she ended up, Fortunately, on her computer, she has find my computer or whatever it is, track my computer. So she knew where her backpack went to. And eventually she sent one of her friends over there and knocked on the door. And the driver said that he'd been trying to reach her. But for whatever reason, there was no connection between them. But the company of Uber would not help her. Anyway, she got her backpack back only because she was able to track it. But my point being is that I'm hoping that in our community, we continue to support each other person to person, face to face. Um, because the push to go automated, the push to go digital uh, is going to be really great in 2024. And that's great for the people that run things and control things, but it's not necessarily great for the individual. Yeah, it's really easy to just scan your phone and do everything with your phone. But then again, everybody knows exactly what you're doing. I'm not going to go off on a tangent into tyranny because we've got enough of it here in the old medical community to deal with that. So one of the other things I wanted to talk about was why do people get so angry when they hear different opinions? Uh, as you know, uh, there are people that are putting out information about the dangers of vaccines or people like me or other people. Uh, social media people that put out alternatives to what the medical community uh, wants you to believe is true. 
and the vehemence with which we get attacked uh, in direct messaging or however is, you know, it, I, I don't want to use the in word inconceivable because obviously it's conceivable because somebody's doing it. On the other hand, it just, I, I, it, I, if somebody presents information that's different from what I present, I'm willing to listen to it. I may mock it sometimes, stuff like that, but I'm I'm never going to vilify the person personally and attack them and call them names like the like what happens. Um, I was listening to an interview with Seth Dillon. Seth Dillon is the um, CEO of the Babylon Bee. Uh, people don't know that that's a satire site, and 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 what he says also is satire is getting harder to do right now because reality is satire. But he says that it, that this outrage that you get is fake outrage. It's not that we're wrong. Um, it's that we just upset their narrative and it makes them uncomfortable. And it's a form of cognitive dissonance. And again, I'm hoping that 2024, we can start to call these people out and say, listen, go get therapy. You know, go have some chocolate. You know, go get laid. Do something to make yourself happy and stop being angry all the time. And maybe there are opinions that are different than yours. You don't have to follow them, but you don't, you know, but but they're 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 not necessarily wrong. And most of the time they actually aren't wrong. So again, I'm hopeful that in the coming year, that at least in our community, we can all be nice to each other and stand up for each other because we are doing good. Uh, as you'll as you'll see in the in the next set of stories, which I want to talk about, which is uh, a little bit more about twins. Um, our last podcast was, or maybe it was two podcasts ago, uh, was a twin home birth story where they had to overcome a lot of obstacles, and it's gotten a lot of great feedback, uh, very little negative feedback, um, and it's it's a heartwarming story uh, to to listen to. If you haven't heard it, please go back and listen to that podcast. Um, but what it's done besides giving me good feedback is that it's brought out a lot of other women who are telling stories about their twins and about sometimes how they were, um, not honored in the hospital, but a lot of home birth twin stories. And, you know, there's a, there's a Facebook, uh, a Facebook or an Instagram group called, uh, twin home birth or home birth twins or whatever. Um, so it's becoming more common. And again, that upsets some people because they think that twins are dangerous and should be in the hospital and stuff like that. But the, if the hospital is not offering choices, then women are going to seek care elsewhere. And more and more um, twin moms are looking outside of the hospital model. The issue, of course, is that the hospital model is pushing back and states are making it sometimes more difficult to uh, find a practitioner who is legally able to help you have your twins. Um, there, there's a, uh, a story of one of the midwives who, well, I'll get to that later. It's, a, it's about the inability to be trained properly. No, actually, I'll, I'll get to that right now. Uh, this is a letter from um, Brianna. Good morning, Dr. Stu and Midwife Bliss. First and foremost, well, you two are amazing, but I always get a little uh, baffled by saying that sort of thing. Anyway, I've listened to your podcast for almost a year now, and because both of you, I'm advancing my nursing career and applying to CNM schools this winter. I'd like to share something frustrating that I've come across while applying to one particular school. As I'm reading the CNM's program, Clinical Rotations at Home Birth Clinical Sites Info Regulations, they state, quote, home birth sites that provide home trial of labor after cesarean or VBAC, multiple gestations or breech birth are ineligible and may not be used for any portion of the clinical practicum by any students, unquote. And she goes, what the actual fuck? My dream is to become a home birth midwife in my underserved area of New York State. I believe every mama has the right to decide where and how she wants to deliver her babies and would love to provide care to VBAC, breach, and twin mamas one day. Again, I want to say something that 
again, the, these are always lumped together. To make it clear, breach and twin mamas require certain extra skills that you need to have. VBAC is just a normal vaginal delivery. But the idea that even the this is this is a medicalized uh, thought process, and now it's entered into midwifery schools that they're lumping VBAC breach and twins into the same group. Why would VBAC be something that a midwife isn't allowed to witness at home and get credit for? So the fact that I can't observe a home breach birth or twin birth, or even a VBAC for that matter, and count that as education gained during my clinical rotation is, in my opinion, ridiculous in mind also. So I'm only allowed to count these births as, quote, education gained, unquote, when they are in the hospital setting. Ugh. This infuriates me on so many levels. Thanks for taking the time to read my vent. Um, hope you both enjoyed the holiday and new year. Thanks, Brianna. So the point getting back to twins is that we are hearing more home birth twin stories and they are going to be attacked. But the people that are training future practitioners are making it again. Seems like to me, for every step forward we get where Breach Without Borders gets into a residency program to teach breach training, we're hearing more two steps backwards of more restrictions on what medical students, residents, midwives are being taught or allowed to do. Um, my friend Rebecca Walker in Minnesota gave me a, a funny story, uh, a lovely story the other day. She 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 tells it better, but I'm just going to paraphrase. She said that she had had an Amish woman up in northern Minnesota who had no had no ultrasounds during her pregnancy, and she had palpated what she felt was a fairly large baby, and she went into labor, and a baby came out, and um, there was some reason that postpartum afterwards the baby came out, she needed to do a vaginal exam for something. Maybe it was the placenta, I can't remember. And she reaches up and she feels feet. And so she had, which is very rare these days, what's called a surprise twin birth. 70 years ago, 50% of twins were diagnosed in labor. Now it's almost zero because ultrasound is used so frequently. So the woman had the second twin breach and Rebecca has taken courses, knew what to do. And it was uneventful. And had this birth, of course, been in the hospital, of course, if it was in the hospital, she never would have been undiagnosed because they would have been doing ultrasounds on her all along. But um, she would have ended up with uh, probably a cesarean section. So these skills are so necessary. And I wish my medicalized colleagues would just sort of wake up and realize that this is something that should be taught and that insurance companies and things would 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 value that skill and incentivize doctors to do it because as you know financial incentives seem to be the way we mobilize or motivate um pretty much everything in medicine these days um telling women that and this is what happens in the medical model telling women from the first day they come in about, about problems, about this is how the medical world sees birth. You know, I repeat this a lot, but ACOG says pregnancy itself is a high-risk condition. And so many of my colleagues, they're looking for things to, to tell a woman um, that could be problems, maybe to protect themselves. Maybe that's just how their thought process works. But I heard a good analogy uh, the other day, and it's, it's basically a coach telling his team that they're hopeless, that they have no chance of winning. So why even play the game? Which is sort of similar to doctors planting seeds of doubt in a woman from the very beginning, if she has a breach or twins or she's over 35 or she's got some other, other non-issue that becomes an issue. Um, and if you, you're essentially telling them that they, that they can't succeed, you're setting them up for failure. Uh, so then there's this, then there's this, uh, AI story, which I want to read because it leads into, uh, something that I'm going to talk about with respiratory syncytial virus. But this is a, this is a letter from Anna and she says, hi, Dr. Stu, I'm not one to reach out to people on here, but after listening to your, a recent podcast episode and the bit about chat GPD writing birth stories, I don't know if you've 
probably listened to me read them on on previous things, but they're they're these lovely stories that just they're so milk toast that they almost you want to puke a little bit. I decided to ask AI feature in Snapchat to do the same thing. She says, just for shits and giggles, this is a story it wrote. Quote, sure thing. Once upon a time in a bustling city, a couple eagerly awaited the arrival of their little one. They had chosen to have a hospital birth as they wanted the support and expertise of medical professionals. On the big day, they arrived at the hospital, nerves mixed with excitement. The labor room was filled with the sounds of beeping machines and the comforting scent of antiseptic. That's right. The comforting scent of antiseptic. The AI thinks that that's comforting. Okay. The doctors, that's why I think she says shits and giggles. The doctors and nurses were there every step of the way, monitoring the mother's progress and providing pain relief when needed. The couple, the couple held on to each other tightly, finding strength in their love and anticipation. Finally, after hours of labor, their beautiful baby entered the world, surrounded by the skilled hands and caring hearts of the medical team. The couple felt an overwhelming sense of joy and gratitude, knowing that their little one had been safely brought into the world in the care of the hospital. It was a moment they would cherish forever. Pause for effect there. My husband and I were nearly on the floor reading the part about the beeping machines and the comforting smell of antiseptic. Because you know, there's nothing like annoying medical equipment and strong chemicals to get those labor hormones rocking. I personally enjoyed the smells of lavender and peppermint during my births, but to each their own, I guess. Anyway, I'm sorry to... I'm sorry to both of you, just wanted to pass that along, if for no other reason than to give you a nice chuckle today. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know why she's sorry. Um, the reason I read that is, is multiple fold, but one of them is that this is the kind of thing that people are going to find online as more and more um, of search engines begin to filter and uh, censor alternative ways of thinking or, or thought. And they're going to make these things um, feel like they're the standard. And it's very, very um, scary. And you, it's scary because most people are not necessarily awake. I know that people listening to this podcast are awake. And I know that you're aware. That's why you're listening. And that's why you support Bliss and I constantly every week by sharing the podcast, writing a review, giving it five stars. These sort of things are very helpful to get the, the word out there. But many people are not. And they're going to read a story like that and they're going to think as, as soft and spongy as that one was, some people are going to believe that that's what it's like. So the reason, and another reason is because when you start to hear stories like that, you can start to determine what's propaganda and what isn't propaganda. And there is a lot of propaganda out there. And one of the things that's, that, that's very propagandized is what's going on with the push for RSV vaccines and COVID vaccines during pregnancy and breastfeeding. And also for newborns. And I'm going to talk a little bit about those right now today. And this one's called Ask the Pediatrician COVID-19 Vaccines During Pregnancy and Breastfeeding by Lisa M. Costello, MD, MPH, Fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And I'm going to read it just like it, it's written. And you tell me, does it sound like... Someone is being honest with you? Does it sound more like an AI bot wrote it? Or does it sound like this is propaganda from the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is incentivized by Big Pharma and the CDC to promote these untested, uh, as far as randomized placebo-controlled trials for these things in our women and lactating moms and, new and newborn babies? So this is from Lisa Costello, whoever she may be, she can be very proud of herself. A question I commonly get from patients and friends is this, 
Should I get a COVID vaccine if I'm pregnant or want to become pregnant? I ask myself that same question and the answer is yes. My husband and I got our COVID shots a few months before I got pregnant and I got another COVID shot during my pregnancy. I am one of the hundreds of thousands of pregnant people living in the U.S. who got vaccinated around pregnancy, and I had a beautiful baby girl in February of 2022. It's natural to pause to think about a decision that affects not only yourself, but also another person. I decided to get a COVID-19 booster shot when I became eligible during my second trimester. I knew that it would be beneficial to my health and the health of my newborn. Here are some answers to questions I'm frequently asked. One, if I get a COVID vaccine during pregnancy, does it also protect my baby too? Answer, yes. Immunization during pregnancy allows your body to create antibodies that can be passed along and protect your baby. Infants are recommended to start receiving the COVID-19 vaccination themselves at age six months. Until then, immunization when you're pregnant helps your immune system and your baby's immune system. I'm not even commenting here. We also know that getting sick with COVID while pregnant can increase the risk of miscarriage or stillbirth. Vaccination helps protect you and your baby from the most serious outcomes of COVID illness. Question two, what if I'm on the fence and thinking about waiting? Waiting to get the COVID vaccine is risky. COVID-19 immunization is effective and helps prevent serious illness or hospitalization from COVID. Vaccination also helps decrease risk of long COVID. If you get COVID while you are pregnant, you can become seriously ill. By the way, this, you can become, you may become seriously ill is mindlessly repeated over and over in every aspect of what the CDC puts out. Um, never giving you any numbers, never giving you any actual risks. Um, it's actually meant to sound scary because fear is the greatest motivator. Getting sick with COVID can lead to higher risks for miscarriage, preterm birth, stillbirth, and death. More than 29,000 pregnant people have been hospitalized with COVID and hundreds have died according to the CDC. So I need to try to put that in context. I don't know if those numbers are correct or not. I don't trust the CDC to tell me anything that's true. That's where I'm coming from. But if we've had COVID vaccines now for three years, or almost three years, there's 4 million pregnant women a year. So that's like 12 million women. So they're saying out of 12 million pregnant women, 29,000 pregnant women have, they say people, have been hospitalized. That's not a very high number. Um, how many of those 12 million women had COVID altogether and weren't hospitalized? We don't know. How many 12 million controls got COVID and were hospitalized, we don't know, all right? Or weren't hospitalized, we don't know that either. So these numbers are meaningless because they lacked reference. They lack context, um, but they're not meant to have context. They're meant to tell you things to get you down, to funnel you down the path they want you to take, which is to get the COVID vaccine. I mean, listen to the language. The benefits of the vaccine during pregnancy continue when you become new parents. I have seen some families I care for become so sick from COVID that they are un unable to be with or care for their newborn. It is devastating. I encourage anyone who is on the fence to talk to their pediatrician or other medical experts. Well, I'm a medical expert and I have a different opinion. She would not be happy about that. Bliss. What is Element? L-M-N-T. It's an amazing sponsor, first of all. We love them so much. But it's a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS, like... Us. That's right. <laughs> I taught you well. <laughs> it is. It, it's got a lot of uh, good salts in it and uh, no sugar. I even uh, took a little notes here, and they have um, 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium, which helps maintain... Fluid balance, regulates your blood pressure, and supports muscle function, mood, and bone health. Which is great for pregnant mamas, breastfeeding moms, and absolutely for birth workers. So make sure that you have some in your in your birth bag 
if you need it or if your clients do in labor. For sure. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalances can cause like headache, cramps, fatigue, and weakness, especially in the birthing world. You know, a long time when we, before what I used to do it, but you still do. <laughs> you have a lot <laughs> of time sleep after being up all night and snacking on like not such good food sometimes. And I carry it with me whenever I travel and I add it to my water, like in the hotel room and stuff. And I spent a lot of time recently in hotel rooms. It's a great sponsor and they've, they've been doing really well and I'm really proud to be um, supporting them. They have multiple flavors. Your favorite, uh, favorite is raspberry, right? Raspberry is mine and yours is mango chili. Yeah. But I, I do have, I do have some sad news. Aww. So long, old friend, to Lemon Habadero. Oh, man. They discontinued it? So they could concentrate on citrus salt, raspberry salt, orange salt, raw unflavored, mango chili, chocolate salt, and watermelon salt. Maybe they're going to come out with some new stuff, too. But I trust <laughs> Elements. I trust that the, uh, they've done a deep dive into the research. They put their whole soul into it. We would like you to go to Drink Element. That's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, all one word. And when you do that, you'll get a free sample pack with your every order. Go do it. Go do it. Have vaccines been studied in pregnant people? COVID-19 vaccination during pregnancy has been studied for years. Yeah. Okay. Uh, by the way, never any data, never any references. These are these are these are propaganda pieces. These are not articles. Right? They're listed as articles. They're put in there as if they're like almost a research paper or an article, but they're not. It's pure pure propaganda. Because if it was really true, they would give you references. They don't give you any references. Doctors and scientists have been monitoring pregnant people who receive the vaccine, and more information confirming its benefits arrives all the time. COVID-19 vaccine safety has been monitored in tens of thousands of pregnant people. The Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the FDA, and other advisory groups continue to monitor safety. I don't think you guys are going to be surprised what the next sentence out of my mouth is, is that shouldn't monitoring for safety have been done before they gave it to tens of thousands of pregnant women? But that's asking too much of a question. Next question, what about vaccines and fertility? Thousands of people who have received COVID immunizations have gone on to get pregnant. Thousands of people? I thought it's been given to like millions of people. A study of more than 2,000 females aged 21 to 45 years and their partners found that immunization of either partner did not affect the likelihood of becoming pregnant and studies in men who were immunized show that sperm does not change afterwards. Okay, again, no reference. I can give references to articles that say the opposite of that. Work by Merrill Nass, work by James Thorpe, work by Sherry Tenpenny, all, um, and others, obviously, uh, Peter McCullough, um, all show data that says the exact opposite of what was just in that paragraph. Next can I breastfeed after getting a COVID vaccine? What do you think the answer is going to be? Yes, you can safely breastfeed after the vaccine. We are learning that protective antibodies can pass through the, to the baby through breast milk. By the way, as can spike protein. I was comforted knowing that I passed along some immunity to my daughter through breastfeeding. This is one way I protected her until she became old enough to be immunized against COVID herself. Many pediatrician offices will soon offer 2023-2024 updated COVID vaccines for babies, kids, and teens. Contact your pediatrician's office to find out the best time to schedule your child's appointment. Does this sound like an article? Um, does it really? This, this is a propaganda piece. And then it says, if you have other questions about receiving the COVID vaccine while pregnant, talk to your obstetrician or pediatrician. Hmm. Having a conversation with a healthcare professional you trust can help you make the best choice. Well, that, that, that statement's probably true. You've got to find somebody you trust. But I would tell you that if your doctor is still telling you to get this vaccine while you're pregnant or to get it before you're pregnant and then get one while you're pregnant and then get one while you're nursing, um, that is not somebody that I would trust. That's my opinion. 
And if that inflames some people who, as we talked about at the very beginning, uh, they get so angry when there's another opinion out there. Um, I'm not angry that this propaganda piece was written by this physician, or even if she's a real physician, I have no idea. I assume she is, but I, I, you know, I, it doesn't even say, you know, the author reports no conflicts of interest or who's paying her or where she works or whatever. But, um, I would be very, very skeptical ever giving any of these shots to my family, no matter what age you are, quite frankly, at this point. Um, there's almost no reason to to get it. And yet many people are still getting it. It's far less than it were before, but many people, including some of my own family members, are still getting boosted. They know where I stand on it. They do it anyway, because that's their, their choice. Um, I don't think it's an informed choice, but that's their choice. Um, so then um, Peter McCullough uh, from Courageous Discourse writes, uh, wrote an article and he's, it's, it's titled Infant Mortality Concerns Emerges with Nersemvimab. <laughs> Why do they come up with these names like Abrismo and Nersemvimab? Uh, RSV monoclonal antibodies. So monoclonal antibodies are different than a vaccine. They're giving the antibodies to it. And monoclonal antibodies have been used in some diseases to some great effect. But now, of course, RSV has become the new villain. Because I think that big pharmacies is a big opportunity to promote another billion dollar uh, vaccine push. And so they're pushing to get these things on the schedule and they're promoting it ad nauseum. So... This um, article goes on to say by Peter McCullough, respiratory syncytial virus is a common viral infection affecting infants, uh, mainly under age one year, easily treated with nebulizer therapy. So there's easily easy treatment for it. Urgent care, emergency rooms, and hospitalizations can occur for serious cases, and if treated early, infant mortality should not be a concern. Among the 22.4 million children under the age of five, the annual risk of RSV hospitalization is well under 1%. In an August 4th Substack post, Dr. Merrill Nass, somebody I respect, a physician and researcher cited CDC data to state that 25 babies up to the age of one year died from RSV in the United States annually on average over a 12-year period. 4 million babies a year are born in the U.S., 20,000 die in the first year of life, Respiratory syncytial virus kills 0.125% of them. It's way down the list of top causes of death, she wrote. RSV does hospitalize a lot of U.S. infants. It frightens parents and causes a lot of work for doctors. And so this group of pediatricians on CDC's advisory committee went gaga over this new product. Nersevimab. <laughs> oh, my God. I think they did that on purpose, which is supposed to be 70, 80% effective at preventing severe RSV disease, she wrote. The fact that nersevimab is a monoclonal antibody has also raised concerns. Has any monoclonal antibody product been given on a mass scale to children ever? No, Dr. Nass notes. Monoclonal antibodies are copies of an antibody that seek out foreign material to destroy them. Such treatments come with risks that the body might trigger a strong reaction to antibodies. According to CNBC, 12 infants who received nersemivab in clinical trials died. However, a review by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration concluded that the deaths were not related to antibody treatment. Uh, does anybody listening believe that? Maybe we should just leave newborns alone. That would be nice. Maybe we should just, just trust that that up until this point, we a very small number have died. But it but as Merrill Nass says, it's 0.125% of the causes of death for infants in the first year of life. And yet we want to now start giving this to every single baby with no no safety testing, knowing and and, and the use of monoclonal antibodies 
in newborns has never been done on a mass scale. So, um, as I said, the biopharmaceutical complex has targeted RSVP as we emerge from the pandemic as a viral threat to propagandize young parents in an all-out war against the virus. Incredibly, there are perfusion antigen vaccines for pregnant mothers. That's a Brisbo. That's the vaccine that we talked about in a previous podcast, and I also did a reel on that. You can find that on my Instagram page back several months ago. Who do not have significant risk for the disease, and now nirsevimab <laughs> are widely endorsed and given on the first day of life in the U.S. since October 2023 with no long-term safety data. In an interview with Dr. McCullough did with Dr. Helen Banoon, hope I'm pronouncing that right, from France. She's an independent researcher in France who used to work for the, the, the government. Uh, there appears to be concern for antibody-dependent enhancement of RSV in the original randomized controlled trials. Uh, she goes on to say, an antibody-dependent enhancement is where it actually you, you give the antibodies and it actually triggers more of a, a hyperimmune response that can do damage to your body. Um, she also says the efficacy of RSV, uh, uh, for, for preventing RSV by the new uh, medication, which I shall not pronounce, um, the efficacy for preventing RSV hospitalization was not compelling from two randomized controlled trials, one in the New England Journal of Medicine. In France, according to Banoon, Sanofi, the company that's directly uh, that manufactures it, is directly financially incentivizing hospitals and midwives to give the injection. And we've seen this. We saw that the CDC did this with COVID vaccine. They financially incentivized the American College of OBGYN to promote the vaccine to pregnant women. Uh, corruption is wide open. Benoon, while calling for investigation of the deaths, is being heavily censored including complete shadow bans and inability to stream videos from her home computer. Can you imagine? Wow. Newborns have never been given a monoclonal antibody on the day of birth ever in the history of mankind. And like with COVID-19 vaccines, the biopharmaceutical complex is running the table, prioritizing profits by risking the lives of newborns. So, um, I know that I spend a lot of time on this. It seems to be a topic that comes up in a lot of podcasts, uh, but I can't think of anything that that we do that's really of greater importance than how we treat our children, our our fetuses, and our newborn children. And if you look overall at the outcomes of what we're doing. We're not improving the care of these children. We're not improving, excuse me, the health of these children. Uh, we have more and more chronic illnesses. We have, uh, you know, despite all the interventions and all the vaccines and all the surgery and all the inductions and all these things, we're not doing better. At some point, maybe 2024, maybe they'll stop and take a look at what they're doing and maybe change course. However, I would not hold my breath. So Stu, I have a question for you. I'm shocked. What is it? <laughs> what is one thing in a woman's pregnancy that she can control because so much is out of our control? Uh, her nutrition? That's right. And we are so excited to be partnered with such an amazing company as needed because they have focused on pregnancy, postpartum as being some of the most nutritionally demanding time in a woman's life. And it can be influenced by her nutrition status. So they support women during this time with all kinds of amazing products. Their line just has so many options. So make sure and check them all out. But Stu's going to tell us a little bit about um, their immune support because it's turning fall and we need that a little bit more right now during this time. Yeah, Needed has an immune support, uh, which is a popular choice right now with all the back-to-school germs and heading into the winter when we all tend to get sick more frequently. And the people ask sometimes, well, if I'm pregnant, can I take this product? And of course, yes, it was formulated uh, for pregnant mamas in mind. So it's uh, recommended and safe in pregnancy. Support is intended to complement, not replace 
other products that they offer as well. So it's just one of those things that you add to your, you know, your prenatal vitamins, your probiotic, your maybe your stress support, your sleep and relaxation support. But Bliss, I wanted to talk about something else today. Don't forget the men. That's right. We love the men. Right. So they have a sperm support, uh, men's pre and probiotic. And they say men play a critical role in conception and healthy pregnancies. I, I, I imagine that's true. <laughs> <laughs> they do. <laughs> and the preconception health can significantly impact both fertility outcomes and also the health of their future children. Needed's men fertility plan is a must for couples trying to conceive to support the multiple components of fertility, including sperm health, gut health, optimal nutrient levels, and testosterone levels, which, by the way, are falling worldwide. So you can do this and it works. Why not? I trust Needed's products with my patients because they use scientifically studied ingredients and perform rigorous third-party testing. And unlike other products on the market, Needed designs their products from the ground up using the latest research and insights from men's fertility practitioners. So, you know, we are a woman's podcast mostly, but I don't want those dads to feel excluded. So head over to thisisneeded.com and use code birthinginstincts for 20% off your one-time order. That's right. Thanks, Needed. Okay. I'm also reading, and I would suggest for any parent whether you're planning to have children, whether you're pregnant now or whether you have young children or just if you're 67 and want to educate yourself about what's going on. I'm reading, I'm reading two books by an author named Forrest McReady, McReady, M-A-R-E-A-D-Y. Uh, one is called Moth in the Iron Lung, which I finished. It's about polio. It's a remarkable story that poliomyelitis is, is a disease that is most often not caused by the polio vaccine. And it's probably, I mean, polio virus, and it's probably more commonly related to the use of heavy metals and pesticides and other things like that. It's a very interesting book to read called Moth in the Iron Lung. And his other book is called Crooked, Man-Made Disease Explained. And this takes a real deep dive into the use of heavy metals like mercury, aluminum, lead, arsenic in our environment uh, from in the turn of the century uh, or prior to the turn of the century, uh, the turn of the 19th century, 20th century, 1900s, um, and how this was used indiscriminately in paints and pesticides and fertilizer and all kinds of things. They, I still remember when I was a kid of the trucks driving down the street spraying DDT and we little kids running and riding our bikes through the smoke um, because we were told it was harmless. I can't, I mean, I could, I could categorize. Yeah, I guess um, all the errors in judgment that have been done by the medical community in the last hundred years. And the list would be very, very long, you know, from these sorts of things and giving people, the little blue pill, which contained mercury in it as a medicine. Um, mercurochrome, which my mom used to put on my cuts and scrapes. Yeah, it killed bacteria, but it's also had mercury in it. Um, then we, you know, we've talked about thalidomide and DES and the food pyramid and Vioxx and uh, remdesivir and maybe statins and certainly SSRIs and I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. Smoking, seven out of 10 doctors prefer Winston's. This was an advertisement when I was uh, a, a little kid. Um, so they've been wrong, 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 wrong. And I would like to see the next generation of parents educate themselves by reading these kind of books like Roth in the Iron Lung or Crooked Man-Made Disease Explained or dissolving illusions or vax unvax or turtles all the way down. If you're a parent, these are books you should be reading. You don't need to read what to expect while you're expecting, right? Because that will just prepare you to be a team that can't win, like we talked about earlier. Okay. So um, from the green midwife on Instagram and reiterated by my friend, James, the midwife on Instagram, 
the United Kingdom has put out a couple of stats um, and about their their uh, labor and delivery statistics for the for the 2023 year, I believe. And they it's they're kind of appalling. Some of you have seen them. I just want to reiterate that again, the medical model isn't doing so well. It's the classic uh, Moneyball argument from the movie Moneyball. If he's such a good hitter, how come he doesn't hit good? If the medical model is such a good thing, how come it isn't doing good things? One third of labor, one third of labors were induced in the United Kingdom in last year. This was up from 23% in 10 years prior. So it went from 23% induction rate to 33% induction rate in 10 years. Are our, are our outcomes any better? Well, not really. There's no statistical difference in the rate of stillbirth um, between 2012 and 20, or 2020, 2012, 2013, and, and, and now. Only 43% of women had spontaneous labor. 57% of women were either induced, had C-sections uh, to start their, or, you know, scheduled C-sections. Less than half of women went into labor on their own in the United Kingdom last year. And 39% overall had cesarean sections. 39 is 4 in 10. So it used to be 1 in 3, now it's 4 in 10. Um, it used to be 1 in 20 50 years, 50 years ago. So what's happening? Are we are we doing better? And the answer is no, we're not doing better. Uh, I wanted to read uh, a letter from... Oh, actually, I, it's not a letter. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, breach in uh, right now. There was a um, person that I know, Robin Schaefer, she's a PhD, and she did her dissertation and she did it on, um, this is why I'm calling this the leftover podcast, people, because I just have all these things that have been sitting on my desk. I got a stack that's almost an inch high of letters and other things that I just I can never get to, but I'm going to keep them. And maybe we'll do this once in a while where we'll we'll just go through stuff like this. But this was a uh, an article she wrote about her dissertation. The article is called, I Had No Choice. A Mixed Method Study on Access to Care for Vaginal Breach Birth. And it's a small study. There are only 25 uh, participants in the study. But it's very enlightening as to what these women would said. So it goes like this. Introduction. Although current recommendations support vaginal breach birth as a reasonable option, access to breach birth in the United States hospitals is limited. This study explored the experiences of decision-making and perceptions of access to care and people who transferred out of the hospital system to pursue a home breach birth. So this is obviously very near and dear to my heart. Of the 25 individuals who left the hospital system to pursue a home breach birth, most felt denied informed choice, 64%, and threatened or coerced into cesarean, 68%. The majority reported low or very low autonomy in decision-making, 80%. Many participants felt safer in a hospital setting, but were not able to access care for planned vaginal breach hospital birth. So I'm just paraphrasing, I'm just not paraphrasing, I'm summarizing here because I don't want to read the whole article. Um, but I will put the uh, reference in the show notes, as I will to all these other articles that I talked about and the, and the books I talked about. Without access to vaginal breech birth in hospitals, some individuals choose to pursue breech birth at home. American College of OBGYN, or ACOG, is supportive of informed choice for intended site of birth, but considers breech presentation an absolute contraindication to home birth. So the themes expressed were for um, lack of uh, opportunity for informed choice. And these are some of the quotes that that uh, were, were were given. Which with breach you have no control. They have control over everything. Absolutely, it takes away all of your power as women. Lack of options. I just wish for all women to have more options. I felt a bit backed into a corner. It's either you do something that you don't particularly want to do to your body, or you pay pay a huge amount of money to do it privately if you're lucky enough to even find a practitioner, which feels like a really hard place to be. 
coercive counseling. With the hospital doctor, there was just no option. It was, if you deliver your baby vaginally, your baby will die. You will have to have a C-section. Incomplete counseling. They're being super lopsided with the information they're giving me. They're giving me all the risks to giving breech birth, but they're not giving me all the risks that come with another cesarean section. And I'll tell you, that's true in ACOG's breech guidelines. They have said that properly selected breech birth with a skilled practitioner in a hospital setting um, is a reasonable choice, but you need to inform the woman that there's a slight increased risk of morbidity and blah, blah, blah with a vaginal breech birth. But nowhere in their guidelines is there any discussion about the risks of cesarean for breech birth. Um, it's as if cesarean is the default position and you don't need to give risks about it. You only need to risk if you deviate from the path that they want you to take. And that is skewed counseling. That is inappropriate. That is unethical. Some more quotes. I would have been more comfortable in a hospital setting with a vaginal breech birth, but we literally couldn't find somebody. I called every hospital in a 150-mile radius begging for someone, anyone, to help me to deliver my baby naturally. I would love to have a hospital birth. If something goes wrong, there's fantastic people to help in that situation. And that's true. I hate that I didn't have that. Um, some participants shared that they were not enthusiastic about having a home birth, but felt that this was their only alternative to plan cesarean. It's funny, this reminds me of the Heads Up Breach documentary, Heads Up the Disappearing Art of Breach Delivery, where my my friend and former uh, uh, client, Kimberly Vanderbeek, says that very well. She says, I, uh, you know, her second, first baby was a vaginal delivery in the hospital. Her second baby was breached, and she was only given the option of a cesarean section. And she says, I really never wanted to have a home birth. It wasn't something that was even on my radar, but I was sort of forced into it. And then, of course, she went on to have four or five more after that. So um, it turned out to be a very good thing for her. But yeah, a lot of a lot of women, the idea of a home birth is a is a bridge too far. But that's it. They have no choice. Another quote: Since hospital vaginal birth wasn't an option, we just had to figure out a way to make a midwife work at home. Another quote: Personally, it does scare me when I hear about women talk about doing free unassisted birthing. I feel like it's unnecessary. It's an unnecessary risk that a lot of women feel like they have to take because their options are so limited in the hospital. Limitations on agency and access to care were upsetting for many participants who reported feeling cornered or trapped. Several participants described encounters in which they felt judged, pressured, and disempowered by their prenatal care providers. Participants also expressed frustration at financial, legal, and regulatory constraints that limited options for care. Another quote, they told me that if I showed up in the hospital, if you walk through these doors, you will be sectioned. Another one, all I want is a chance. If it ends up being a C-section, it ends up being a C-section, but I just want a chance to try. The doctor told me why I needed to schedule surgery. She was super pushy about it. I was so uncomfortable. She left the room and I started crying because I just felt like they're not listening to me. They're not hearing me. Encounters perceived as, oh, one more, excuse me. I am horribly frustrated and saddened that there was nothing more they could do to help me all because of a lack of training and because of hospital policy. Encounters perceived as coercive or disrespectful were common cited impetus for deciding to leave the hospital system. Positively perceived decision-making encounters were those in which healthcare providers presented breach diagnosis as a decisional opportunity, listened to individuals' concerns and allowed time for processing and information gathering and showed care, concern, compassion, and respect for individuals' embodied knowledge, preferences, individual risk factors, and autonomy. In other words, even doctors who don't do breach or their hospitals don't allow them to do breach, if they just listen and they talk about it and they give them say, listen, I can't help you, but there are people down the road or across state lines or in the home that can help you. And I, I can't really endorse home birth or free birth because you know, I don't believe in it or my organization would would crucify me if I did. But at least they're listening to you. That makes a huge difference, according to these women. There's a quote, the home birth midwives explained everything. And then you felt like you had a choice. And when you said no, you knew that you were saying no to, you knew what you were saying no to, excuse me. 
With the hospital doctor, you didn't have an option. It was just like you're having a C-section. Another quote, everybody I contacted was still leaning towards a C-section for me, even though I had already had two babies vaginally. Breach. I don't want to have a major surgery for something I've done twice successfully. It doesn't make sense to me. Although the baby safety was a top priority for all participants, it was not the only factor that determined plan mode of birth. Future reproductive capacity, postpartum recovery, and family responsibilities, and psychological and emotional health were viewed as essential components of participants' well-being and major decisional factors. And I would say, again, that this is something that I've reiterated many times. When I see a couple or a consult on breech birth, um, whether they've had a vaginal delivery before or, or, or not, uh, I'll always ask him this question. Did your doctor ever ask you if you want more children when he was discussing his recommendation for cesarean with you? And the answer is universally no. That was never discussed because all that matters to that physician to quote one of my favorite quotes is all that matters is a live baby in the bassinet and how that baby gets there is not their concern. And what happens to that mother and their mother's future babies is not their concern. It should be. And I, and I do believe that doctors have the humanity in them that if they just took a moment, they would feel that way. However, between their system, time constraints, what's beaten out of them, um, they, they, they just don't. Here's a, here's a longer quote. It says, I felt like I was getting bullied and punished and made to feel like I was putting my baby's life at risk. But the reality of it is this. It's all a risk either way. They pinpoint your vulnerability by telling you your baby is going to die. But they don't discuss with you the mental, emotional, and physical trauma of forcing a C-section on someone who didn't really want it. People mean well when they say, but you got a baby out of it. But at the same time, it's like, okay, but at what cost? And lastly, overall participants criticized a health system that failed to provide safe and respectful care for breech birth and advocated for more skilled providers and access to supportive hospital-based care. Mandatory C-sections for breech are cruel, plain and simple. It's not selfish to want a choice. There needs to be more options for mothers. If vaginal breech birth is as unsafe or as risky as the hospital poses, and they're the ones that have all the resources to assist, why don't they? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, yeah, if they say it's so unsafe to do this anywhere else, and the hospital they say is the safest place to give birth, then why are they not helping women give birth breach vaginally? That's a really good question. Lastly, well, I know the answer, but and lastly, if we give people the option and the respect that they deserve, then they'll choose a safe environment. Right now, we don't do that, or we don't have that. Women feel like they can't be respected or can't have the choices that they want at the hospital. And so they're choosing to give birth at home, even though it's not ideal and sometimes unassisted. We could really go a long way to make it safer for babies and women. So thank you for to Robin Schaefer for doing this research. Um, I'm glad it's out there in the ether. Uh, again, the reference will be in the um, show notes. But it's just important to, this is the kind of comments that I hear in my role as breach practitioner, advisor, consultant, all the time. This is, and they come to me a lot of times because they're given no choices in the hospital setting. So Bliss, we have a not new sponsor for FIT. <laughs> They've been with us for a while now, so we can't call them new anymore, but they do have some exciting new news as BirthFit has its newest member, as our friend Lindsay ha had her baby. So congratulations, Lindsay and family. Yay! Yeah, BirthFit is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and the postpartum. Tell us a little bit about their programs. You know what? They cover you for all aspects of feminine care and birth and postpartum. It's really amazing. So the BirthFit Basics is a prenatal program is 30 days, no equipment necessary for any trimester of pregnancy. So you could try that out before you jump in further. And then they have a prenatal training program, which is full strength conditioning that requires minimal equipment like dumbbells, bands, and a box. 
I had a client the other day who was laying in bed like a good client um, taking my suggestion. She's like, you know, just laying in bed nursing all day. I'm feeling a little sore. You know any stretches? And I said, you should really try this lying in program that they have. It's great for postpartum. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focuses on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum through breathing exercises, visualization, and belly massages. I mean, come on, that sounds amazing. It is amazing. And then, yeah, and then they have um, kind of an intermediate birth fit basics, which requires no um, equipment. So that focuses on foundational breath work and movements to reestablish a solid foundation of core and pelvic floor stability before you go back to any other fitness classes. But they also have a more extensive postpartum program, which is 12 weeks focused on building a base level of general fitness through simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. Yeah, the birth community is where you want to be if you're trying to conceive or know you want to be in the next one to three years. This is a monthly membership program by Women for Women that focuses on general strength and conditioning with respect around one's menstrual cycle. So go to birthfit.com and use the code INSTINCTS1, that's the number one, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program, or go to birthfit.com, use the code INSTINCTS2, to get a discount on the basics postpartum program. We love BirthFit. It's OB and midwife approved. Absolutely. And go check out Lindsay. I mean, she looks great. And she did her own fitness program throughout her whole pregnancy and had an amazing birth. So check it out. Okay. And finally, today, um, we're at the end of the leftovers for today anyway, because of time and just, yeah, it's just, there's, there's so much going on. I just wanted to sort of end with a, a good update on one of the stories that we did when we talked about genetic screening and NIPT. And I read a le letter from Aaron and Aaron was the one who was told that the baby, her NIPT showed that the baby had some abnormality and they were certain of it. And she ended up having to go to Denver where she got evaluated because no one would see her for at least another eight weeks in her healthcare system. And turned out the baby was perfectly fine. So Erin writes as follow-up. She says, hi, Dr. Stu and Bliss. I just finished listening to your NIPT episode and I'm in tears right now after hearing you read my letter on the podcast. I've been meaning to reach out with an update, but life with three kids is busy. Update. I gave birth... Oh, I gave birth at home to my beautiful daughter, Juliet, Suzanne, at 39 weeks exactly. My two little boys, two dogs, and my husband were close by the entire time. She came fast and furious. One cervical check at 6.40 p.m. I was six centimeters. I could still talk through contractions. Baby girl was born in the water at 8.24 p.m. The only active push I gave was after her head was out. I truly breathed my baby out. She was six pounds, six ounces, a pound and a half less than both of my boys, but a perfectly healthy baby. My midwife's assistant spoon-fed me soup in my bed. My two boys sat on the bed and curiously watched while my midwife showed her midwife student how to deliver the placenta. Well, I would hopefully say that how to watch you deliver the placenta would be the best way to do it. When there, and I'm sure that that's what it was. When the placenta came out, my youngest, three years old, said, whoa. My doula got my kids in their pajamas, read to them, put them to bed. I can't believe I ever gave birth in a hospital. She is my best nurser. We co-sleep, and I've never felt more connected to a baby. This has been my best postpartum experience, and I'm truly leaning into this season and savoring it because I think this is our last baby. Despite what I said in my first letter, it's hard not to want to experience another home birth and have another sweet newborn. I know that feeling, actually. I've had, I have to add that I did not have military insurance with my last pregnancy, like Dr. Stu thought. I had TRICARE with my first two, which was why I only had quad screening. But my husband is no longer in the military, and we have United Healthcare. When I called the local MFM's office, they told me they couldn't see me until 20 weeks because they wouldn't be able to see anything or perform an amniocentesis until 20 weeks anyway. Parentheses, which is totally inaccurate considering I ended up having an amnio at 16 weeks. That's why I went to Denver. 
Again, thank you so much for what you do. I listen every week because I keep wanting to learn and hear more stories. I'm pretty sure that I'm annoying. I'm that annoying family friend member that talks about home birth too much. No, you're not. You can never not. But again, giving unsolicited advice to people or or giving uh, Monday morning quarterbacking to people probably isn't the wise thing either. The whole idea, uh, again, that that healthcare is run by administrative cubicle impersonal AI, like my daughter's Uber ride, reaching a human, that humanity has been removed from it, that that here's a woman who was told at 12 weeks that she probably has something wrong with her baby and no one was going to help her for eight weeks in the system. She would have had to pay out of pocket, as she did, to go someplace else to do it. Why do they have a policy like that? Why did the maternal fetal medicine doctors say that to her? The Lord knows. I, I have my suspicions um, that they don't get reimbursed as much or that they're pro prohibited from billing for it or that they're going to get reprimanded by somebody. And they're not always, they're, none of them are actually thinking about the humanity of this woman and what does she really need. Like all those women who spoke out in the, in Robin Schaefer's paper, they just want to be listened to and, and they're not. So I'm hoping, by the way, that 2024 is a year where at least in our community, we start listening to each other. We treat each other with respect. Um, that you <laughs> And that you support our sponsors. Uh, I, I can't thank them enough. So again, uh, until next week when Bliss is back, um, good, good middle of the night to all of you. Uh, and thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 